Well, they've been a part of our lives probably from very early on. We heard lines like, once upon a time, right? Or maybe if you were into those stories, it was a dark and stormy night. (laughs) Or maybe it was more like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? (laughs) Yeah, some of you are there. (laughs) Or simply in the beginning. Stories. Uh, They're a part of our life, aren't they? And they're they're powerful. Stories have a way of of drawing us in. They cause us to lean in and listen a little differently. Stories have a way of touching us uh, the way that facts and figures and stats don't. Stories have a way sometimes of sneaking in behind our defenses and touching parts of our lives that, uh, that are normally a little harder to touch. Stories have been a part of humankind for centuries and centuries. For many of those centuries, stories were communicated orally, verbally. Stories were passed down through the generations. Then as the the printing press and all of that took place, more and more we had stories in print. And so we would read stories, either read to a a child or, or read aloud or silently to ourselves. And now stories are very often told in in film and video. They're they're cut and they're edited and they're shot from multiple angles and there's jumping back and forth and there's music in the background, but, but there's still a story at the heart of it, a story that draws us in, a story that that stretches us along the way. When Jesus came to the earth, God in the flesh. He could have communicated in so many different ways, right? But he chose so often to communicate with a story. And those stories have become not only a part of the New Testament record in the Gospels, but it's, they've become in many ways part of the fabric of, of our culture, particularly where the Judeo-Christian ethic has, has permeated. And so what we want to do for a few weeks is just go back and remember some of those stories. Some of the stories that Jesus told. But they weren't stories just to entertain. They were stories with a purpose. They had a purpose to to open us up, to reveal something about this kingdom. This kingdom that was coming in fullness and power through Jesus Christ. Uh, a kingdom that, that was already in Jesus Christ but was not yet fully consummated. It was still yet to come. And when Jesus wanted to help us to understand the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, he told stories. It was a purpose to draw us in, to stretch our minds, to open our lives to the reality of the kingdom. And so one of the first stories we're going to look at is tucked away in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 13. It's the story of an enemy at work. And one of the realities that I think Jesus was trying to communicate through this story was just the reality that that reminds us that there, there is nothing working with this. There is nothing good that is coming to the world without opposition. And that's especially true in the spiritual realm. 
If, if things are going to move forward, and most of us have experienced this, uh, that if you want some good things to happen in your life, oftentimes that comes with some pushback, that comes with resistance, that comes with some opposition along the way, and it is so much more so in the spiritual realm, in the realm of the kingdom. And so what I want to do is just read the story and then read Jesus' explanation of it, unpack it just a little bit, and then talk about what it means to live in light of the story. So Matthew chapter 13, beginning there in verse 24, Jesus is is packing on these parables. Verse 24, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He goes on and continues his teaching to the crowd. And then in verse 36, he leaves the crowd and is speaking with just his core group of disciples. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him Hear. A sobering reminder that you can hear the story, but not really hear the story. So let's make sure we've heard the story. At the risk of being too elementary and pointing out the, the obvious, particularly that the fact that many of you are very familiar with this parable, let's just go ahead and break it down very simply to make sure we understand what it is that Jesus was saying. He talked about two different sowers. The first sower was the Son of Man, as he explains it in verse 37, Jesus himself represented by the the master who was sowing good seed in the field. There was another sower that he identifies in verse 39 as the devil. 
the enemy, the opposition who sowed the weeds into the wheat field. So you have two sowers sowing two different kinds of seed. The wheat representing sons of the kingdom, as Jesus explained it. Those who will be followers of Christ Jesus, those whose lives were being transformed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, represented by the wheat in the story. And then there are the weeds, or some of your uh, translations may say tares, uh, the, the weeds, and the, these were sons of the evil one. Now, uh, one of the, the parts of the story is that as they are first growing up, that they're intertwined, they're intermingled, they're perhaps even hard to distinguish along the way, and yet they are very, very different. There are two sowers who sow two different types of seed, but they do so in one field. And Jesus explains that that field is the world. It's the world. Now, sometimes when, when preachers wax eloquent on this, sometimes they'll talk about the church and all of these things. But Jesus uh, doesn't say it limited to the church. He's talking about in the world, in the world in which we operate, in the world in which we live, in the world in which we exist. There are sons of the kingdom, uh, but there are also those who are sons of the evil one. And he also mentions in this context that there will be one harvest. One harvest that is at the end of the age. The harvest is not going to come mid-season. It's not going to be removing the weeds uh, to give more room for the wheat because, uh, one, they're a little hard to distinguish at that juncture, but also the roots are intertwined, and in tearing up the one, you would inevitably tear up the other. And so he says, wait, wait until the harvest time, but the harvest time is at the end of the age. That sense of we are living and we are already, if we are in Jesus Christ, part of the kingdom, and it's not yet fully consummated, is not yet fully come. And he mentions an interesting uh, sidebar, if you will. He mentions angels uh, will be instrumental helpers in this harvest, as he talks about that in verse 39. So we have one field, the world. We have one harvest that's coming at the end of the age, two different sowers, Jesus uh, and the devil, sowing two different kinds of seed, uh, sons of the kingdom and sons of the evil one. And inevitably at harvest time, he says there are going to be two different types of outcome, two very distinct outcomes. The first outcome, the, perhaps we would say the negative outcome, is the outcome of judgment. And he talks about that in verses 40 through 42. And he uses some, some very graphic pictures in the story. Uh, he talks about uh, uh, being uh, taken up. Uh, and that talks about uh, uh, fire uh, and uh, those images. In verse 40 and 42, he, he uses some others. The weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Uh, and then he uses some expressions. First of all, he talks about weeping. And weeping is a picture of sorrow and of grief. This, this recognition of this, this reckoning that has come and the, the sorrow and the grief that accompanies it. But he also uses the picture in those verses of gnashing of teeth. And it's, it's a picture of, of pain. And all of this is associated with this judgment that is going to take place at the end of the age. Now, before we go for, forward, let's just pause and readily admit that this is not popular. In fact is, we don't even talk about this very often in churches, particularly in a North American context. 
because quite frankly, it doesn't sell very well, right? It, you know, it's, it's not, it's not going to, you know, promote you onto the latest talk show, perhaps. But Jesus talked about judgment. And when the Scripture talks about God's judgment, it is not because He is evil, but it is wrapped up in the goodness of God. Let me read you some words from N.T. Wright as he commented on this. He said, the word judgment carries negative overtones for a good many people in our liberal and post-liberal world. We need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, God's coming judgment is a good thing, something to be celebrated, longed for, and yearned over. The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, hates passionately anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation. And in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. The judgment of God is rooted in the goodness of God, in the wisdom of God, in the love of God for his creation, particularly men and women who bear the image of God. One of the outcomes that Jesus talked about, not just in this parable, but throughout his teaching, was an outcome of judgment. Just right, wise, good. But there was also an outcome of reward. Of reward, in verse 43, he he pictures, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. That they are experiencing that which, which he intended from the beginning, that which he made possible again through the life and the death of the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stuart Weber puts it this way, here finally, is the hope of the kingdom as it was meant to be. Evil has been purged, and the Father is present in person with his children. They have been purified of sin so that they shine with his perfect righteousness. That's the picture of the kingdom that is to come. That is the picture of of what it is like when God has, has touched our life and transformed our life by his grace and in his power and love and wisdom and in his timing he has removed evil and he has purged it away and restored fully the kingdom. That, Jesus says, is what is to come. With that in mind, knowing that that is there, but it's not yet. We, if we are in Jesus Christ, we are already a part of his kingdom and it's not yet fully realized. 
How then are we to live? Well, let me suggest to you a few thoughts on applying this parable. And the first would seem rather obvious, but sometimes the obvious gets overlooked, doesn't it? Realize. Realize that evil will be present with us until the end of this present age. And that's a sobering message. It's a sobering message when you think about natural evil. When you see pictures out of the Bahamas and the devastation. And you realize that is going to be with us until the end of this present age. When you see the reality of of sickness and disease and 16-year-old girls being killed by a drunk driver. When you see the inhumanity of one person to another, as you see people using power not for the benefit of others, but to crush others and benefit themselves. When you personally, your family, experience the ramifications of evil, it's hard. We have to realize that evil will be present with us until the end of this present age. They will grow up together until the harvest has come. The second part of that is to recognize at least one of God's purposes in not eradicating all evil immediately. And that is grace, that is patience, that is love toward us. Peter put it this way, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I want you to think about this for just a moment. What if, what if one month before you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, he eradicated all evil? I would be without hope. But God in patience allowed me to come to repentance. We started off this fall, the school year, with a focus on who's your one. And we have the names. We've had hundreds of names. All this altar that we were praying for. What are we praying? God, continue to be patient toward them until they come to repentance. Draw them to yourself. And so we recognize, even as we deal with the reality and the ramifications of evil, that at least part of the delay from our perspective at times of the the consummation of the kingdom is the patience of God that ones, maybe the ones we're praying for should come to, should reach repentance. A third application of this parable, I think, is that we're called to exercise discernment. 
That you and I have to realize that we live in a world where there's this intermingling between the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. And we have to understand that we need to exercise discernment because there's going to be falsehood and there's going to be evil. And very often that gets closely disguised as something that looks good. That's what makes the the wheat and the weed so challenging because at first they, they seem to look a whole lot alike and they get intertwined along the way and the uh, the apostles warn us of this Paul wrote it this way no wonder he says for even Satan even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and if that's a reality in the world in which we live then you and I, living between uh, already and not yet, are called to exercise discernment because there's going to be falsehoods. There's going to be counterfeits along the way. And so we need to be aware of Satan's counterfeits. And we don't have time to look at all these scriptures, but I've given them to you uh, as a resource for you if you want to go deeper on any of these. But, but here's just a few of the things the New Testament kind of warns us about. Be on your guard. Watch out for these counterfeits. Exercise discernment in the face of counterfeit Christians. Counterfeit Christians. Those who talk the talk but maybe won't walk the walk. Those who will be culturally Christians because it's convenient. And that's been true very much so in the southern parts of our country, right? Now, if I can play amateur prophet for a few moments I I really feel cultural Christianity is going to continue to disappear because the payoff for it in our culture is disappearing and being identified as a Christ follower is is starting to have costs associated with it and I think as those costs rise cultural Christianity will disappear You'll have those very much not in the core that very much are. I think there'll always be some counterfeits. But I think some of that wide swath of cultural Christianity is, we're already seeing it, uh, disappearing in our culture. So he says, be aware. Be aware of counterfeit Christians, counterfeit followers of Christ. Be aware of a counterfeit gospel. Uh, He warned the Galatians, I I can't believe you're turning uh, away from the true gospel. Uh, He talks about the the punishment of anybody who who comes with a false gospel, uh, those who who, uh, would trust in their goodness and their religion and their morality or their works in some way to earn a right standing with God. And that leads to the next counterfeit, a counterfeit righteousness, uh, that we can be made right with God by something that we do instead of trusting what's already been done for us by the completed finished work of Jesus Christ his life that he lived his death that he died in our place his burial his resurrection his ascension his coming again someday the only thing that can make me right is the gospel of Jesus Christ the good news that Jesus did for me what I could never ever do for myself but there will be counterfeit gospels who are all for a counterfeit righteousness and along with that there will be counterfeit teachers I mean discernment demands that we recognize that not everybody that quotes a Bible verse Not everybody that uses the name God or even Jesus is necessarily a messenger of the kingdom. 
there will be counterfeit teachers, false teachers, Peter called them. And even, hard to believe, Paul warned the Thessalonians, there'll be a counterfeit Christ. He talked about the coming of the man of lawlessness there in 2 Thessalonians. He says, just be aware. Be aware. In fact, is the man of laws may even be testified to by some powerful work, some things that even seem miraculous. So this is be aware. Be aware. So as you and I live between already and not yet, we exercise discernment. But a couple of other observations. Fourth, I think we should refuse to respond to evil with evil. Evil is present. It's going to be present with us until the end of the age. But what Jesus taught, what the followers of Jesus taught was don't respond to evil with evil. Paul wrote the Romans about about it this way. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Does that make anybody else gulp? That's a challenging one. I don't take that to mean, and you put it in the context of the New Testament, that you don't exercise wisdom, that you don't take proper precautions along the way. Certainly don't think this means you allow your child to continually be bullied or anything like that. But it says the fleshly response is going to be to one-up the evil. That's not the way of the kingdom. That's not the way of the kingdom. When Jesus was walking with his disciples, this episode recorded in Luke's gospel where he sent some messengers ahead of him who when they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And his disciples saw this, James and John, I mean, two of the inner, inner circle, right? They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them, right? Anybody else ever had one of those moments? (laughs) You know, Lord, if I had the power of the lightning bolt, right? (laughs) Load it up, right? Jesus turned and he rebuked them. That's why, because there's not a judgment coming? No, there's a judgment coming. It's the only one qualified to administer that judgment. It's the righteous, just, and holy God in his timing and in his way. Now, obviously, the Scripture talks about the role of laws and the role of government and all those things as being dispensers of of justice and and, and keeping society uh, in check. But on a personal level, what this reminds me of, living in a world of evil, that I can't go around 
every time responding to evil with evil. I have to live differently. And that's fueled when I entrust. When I entrust myself to God who is at work, even in the face of evil. Even if I don't fully understand it, even if if everything in me wants to to rip this out now, to be done with this now, I have to entrust myself to a God who is at work even in the face of evil. And so Abraham, as he's looking over Sodom and Gomorrah, and he, he understands what a righteous, just, and holy God should do, and he's also aching for his family lot who's down in there, and he's, he's interceding, and he's having this conversation with God, and in the midst of that conversation is this challenge, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? There are moments... When life is not fair, when evil seems to be prospering, when dishonesty seems to be rewarded, and in those moments I have to come back and say, can I trust? Can I trust that the judge of all the earth will do what is just? When it's all said and done, that there will not be injustice with God. As I entrust myself to him, I take up the the words of Paul as he wrote to the Romans about God's sovereignty and and the mystery behind it, how there's so much of it we don't understand. And he said, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. I don't fully understand it. I, I don't see it from my limited viewpoint. But I come back and say, God, even when I can't figure it out, I trust that there will be no injustice on God's part because that is something he would be incapable of doing. So I come back to that verse we looked at a few weeks ago on our viral verse series, Romans 8, 28, and we know. (laughs) This is how I can trust myself to God. We know that for those who love God, All things, even in a world filled with evil, all things work together for good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. In the midst of a world filled with evil, we can find strength, we can find encouragement in the justice and in the reward of the final judgment of God. So what do I do in the meantime? What does it look like for you and I to live between already, I'm already a part of the kingdom, but it's not yet fully consummated? Let me just encourage you to write down somewhere these four words. Stand out and stand up. Stand out and stand up. So I think that's the essence of what he calls us to do. Stand out. 
that we begin to live our destiny, to, to, to shine like the sun, the, the righteousness of God, that more and more we reflect who God is, more and more we stand out, not, not in an arrogant way, not in a rude way, certainly not in a holier-than-thou way, but we stand out because we are following Jesus Christ. We are reflecting the love and the righteousness and the holiness of a holy God. And so we stand out. We stand out as surely as a Daniel stood out in the midst of a sometimes corrupt government that he was serving. You stand out, but then you also stand up. You stand up. You stand up for those things that are right. You stand up against those things that are wrong. And there have been many through the history of the church, through Scripture, who have been examples of standing out and standing up. But I think of the story of William Wilberforce as perhaps one of the most powerful for me anyway. It could be argued that few men have changed history as profoundly as the English parliamentarian William Wilberforce. Beginning in 1791, he was so moved by his conversion to Christ that he began a crusade to abolish the slave trade in Great Britain. It was a crusade that would try his soul, would cost him friendships, relationships, finances, and his health over the next 20 years. But there's never something good that happens without opposition. The most basic level to speak of Wilberforce is to speak of a biblical worldview and action. When Wilberforce came to Christ early in his political career, he thought, about, he thought about leaving Parliament and public life altogether. But thankfully, William Pitt, who went on to become Great Britain's youngest prime minister, convinced him otherwise. Pitt wrote to Wilberforce, surely the principles as well as the practice of Christianity are simple and lead not to meditation only, but to action. And for the rest of his life, Wilberforce's Christianity meant action. His fiercely unpopular crusade against the slave trade consumed his health, cost him politically, but he could not stand idly by and see the Imago Dei, the image of God enslaved and abused in the holds of ships. He endured verbal assaults and was even challenged to a duel by an angry slave ship captain. When the French Revolution began, what had merely been an unpopular position became a dangerous one in Great Britain. Wilberforce's detractors charged that the humanist revolution would sweep England, and Wilberforce, with his passion for the slaves, was made suspect. Nonetheless, he persevered. Writing about political, political expediency and whether to give up the fight, Wilberforce notes, a man who fears God is not at liberty to give up. Can I just repeat that for somebody this morning? A man or a woman who fears God is not at liberty to give up, to stop standing out and standing up. Wilberforce's worldview led him to engage in more than just the issue of slavery. He sold his home and dismissed servants to have more money to give to the needy. 
He fought for prison reform. He founded or participated in 60 charities. He convinced King George III to reissue a proclamation encouraging virtue and reinstated the Proclamation Society to help see such virtue encouraged. He cared for God's creation, founding the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And he championed missionary efforts like the founding of the British and Foreign Bible Society. All of us would do well to take Pitt's words to Wilberforce to heart. Surely, the principles and practice of Christianity lead not just to meditation, but to action. Jesus taught that there is nothing good, particularly in the spiritual realm, that will happen, that will advance, that will move forward unless there's also experiences opposition. But in the face of that, in the face of that, realize that God is patient, but he is at work. And he is going to bring at the appointed time that harvest to fruition. And for those of us who are living in that between time, already by his grace a part of his kingdom but not yet fully experiencing the consummation of that kingdom we are called not just to meditation but to action to be men and women who stand out as followers of Jesus Christ reflecting his love and his grace and his truth and we stand up we stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves we speak out for those who cannot speak out for themselves We live as followers of Jesus Christ have always lived in the midst of an evil and corrupt generation but standing out and standing up. May it be so for you and I today. Let's pray to him together, please. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for the teachings of Jesus. Thank you for simple stories that the more we lean into them, the more transformational they become. And Father, I, I just pray right now, Lord, would you, would you help us not just to nod our heads in agreement with a story, but you, would you help us to internalize it? Would you help us not just to meditate upon it, but to act, to align our lives in light of its truth, in light of its reality? Father, we live in that place between already and not yet. Would you help us to live as children of the King? Would you help us to stand out and to stand up for Jesus Christ? Father, we just offer ourselves to you. Speak to us and we will respond. We offer ourselves in Christ's name. Now, I'm just going to invite you just to be still for just a moment or two more.